Hello, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Crooked Illness. If you are new here, my name is Paris Brinkevich, and I am the creator and host of the Crooked Illness podcast, where we get into all things health-related. The primary focus of the podcast within the umbrella of health-related topics is mental health and mindset. I began Crooked Illness as a way to motivate, inspire, empower, and educate people on these interesting topics. My background and passion for starting Crooked Illness stems from the field of psychology. After completing both my BA in psychology and MBA in healthcare administration, my passion for mental health only continued to grow. As a result of this, I decided to start Crooked Illness to bring more awareness, tips, and conversations to the table about these topics. I offer my perspective on the work I've done and how it inspired me to begin this podcast. Along with this perspective, I also speak about my personal experience with mental health and how I use those experiences to help educate, inspire, and motivate others. I really enjoy doing interviews and connecting with people who also love to discuss and learn more about mental health. If you would like to learn more, become a guest, or connect, feel free to reach out to me by shooting me a message on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or to my email of crookedillness at gmail.com. Hey guys, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Crooked Illness. Today's episode, we will be talking all about addiction intervention, what it entails, and the importance behind it. Joining me today to share his story related to this is my guest, Scott Jones. Scott is the co-founder of Addiction Training Center, a platform to train individuals on intervention training techniques. I'm excited to get into this topic after having a previous conversation with Scott about his own struggles with addiction in the past, along with the work he has done and is currently doing with Addiction Training Center. So without further ado, I want to welcome Scott to the podcast. Hey, Paris, how are you today? Good, how are you? Hey, I'm happy, I'm alive, uh, everybody's good, and we're all surviving, so that's a yes. good thing. Right? always a good thing, always a yeah. good thing. Yes. Well, it's a pleasure to be talking with you today and have you here on the show, and I'm excited to get into this conversation with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this stuff. Yeah, of course, of course. So if you, if you could... Tell us your experience with addiction and what you learned from that time in your life. Uh, my personal experience with addiction, you know, I grew up in, in a household that had most of the members of the household were addicted in one way or another. Um, and I actually, you know, swearing off, I'll never be like that was actually ended up being worse than any of them. Wow. Um, my primary uh, issue was alcohol and um, started at a very young age and, uh, by the time I was a teenager, I was in a lot of trouble. Was, you know, I started at like 10 years old. So mm. um, by the time I was a teen teenager, I was in a lot of trouble. And I actually found uh, recovery at that point. Um, but it didn't last. I stuck around. I stayed in recovery for a while, but I made some mistakes. Mm. And because of those mistakes, I relapsed and I went back out for another uh, 10 years and did everything from... Uh, from going to jail, having a heart attack, losing everything I had, uh, all those things, um, to basically the doorstep of recovery one more time. But what I learned from all of that was that I had to look at it a little bit differently. I always looked at it like drugs and alcohol were the problem. Mm. And that wasn't the case. The problem was they were always my answer. Oh. No matter what was going on in my life, 
drugs and alcohol were the answer to all of my problems. They were the answer to my, to my stress. They were the answer to my anger. They were the answer to uh, my, my fears, everything. And I was one of those people who believed that I gained courage or I gained happiness from using. Mm. Um, and, I, and for me to actually achieve sobriety this time, I had to stop the lie. Mm. I had to stop the lie. Uh, I'll give you an example of a lie. Uh, we call it getting high. Well, if my intelligence is lowered, my ability to think is lowered, my ability to love or to react emotionally is lower, my inhibitions are lower, I'll even say my ability to control my bladder was lower, mm -hmm. everything was lower. What makes that high? Mm -hmm. yeah. We use that word to tell ourselves the lie, that it's a good thing. But if you look at all of its pieces, there's not one good thing in it. So that's what I've learned uh, from my time of uh, using, getting into recovery, relapsing and going back out and then coming in again and saying, I've got to look at this differently. Mm. And, I like uh, how you bring up that point of saying that, that, that alcohol was the answer for you at the yes. time. That was the answer to all your problems at the time. So how did you, how did you make that shift? Was it in like a mindset shift or what kind of, how, how did you shift that thinking from thinking that this is the answer to all my problems to where, how, where you are now? How did you make that? Okay. Uh, well, the first thing is, as I was saying, is stop believing the lie. Mm -hmm. um, look at the truth. Um, and that's the first thing. I'll tell you what, if there's one key to anybody in recovery, it's, you know, some people say it's praying or God or this, or whatever it might be. The, the big key is the truth. If I know the truth about what I looked like, what I did and how I was acting, I don't want to go back to that. And if I know the truth that although I thought it was my answer, it never answered one question for me. It only made more questions. Mm. It only caused more problems. Once I understood that reality and took that for the truth, then I was able to change. Mm. When I stopped looking at myself as I'm a really good person, I just drink too much. Well, mm -hmm. the truth is because I drank too much, I was no longer a good person. I was a bad person. I was evil. I did bad things. But if I, if I understand that truth, then I can also change that and make mm. it different. So it was a mindset shift, but it was taking the blinders off, taking the rose-colored glasses off, and seeing mm. things for as they really were. The most painful thing I ever had to do, the most painful thing somebody can do is look in the mirror and say, you are a bad husband, you are a bad father, you are a mm. bad son, a bad brother, and a bad friend. But once I could say those things, then I could change them. Until mm. I was able to say it, it was never going to change. Yeah, so it was mainly having an awareness of that, an awareness of the reality of what was going on. Because like you mentioned, you, know, you had those rose-colored glasses on. You didn't, really, you didn't really see the reality of what was happening. And the fact that you saw that, you became aware of it. Then once you had that piece, then you could work on, on fixing it. Because that's really the first... Uh, you, you would agree, right? That's the first thing you need to do in order the to... first thing yeah. is you have to know something's wrong and you have to see what really is wrong. Mm. Um, you know, if, if your car's broken and if it's making noise, if you don't lift up the hood and look at the reality of how it's broken, sitting there and saying all day, well, it's broken, it'll just fix itself, it's mm -hmm. not going to work. My life was broken. The only way I could fix it was by seeing the truth, by lifting the hood, looking underneath and seeing all the dirty, grimy parts that were me. Mm. And guess what? I also found good things in that. When you look at the truth, you also find out the truth is there are good things about me too. It's not all bad. 
Mm, uh, yeah. No, you something to build on. Yeah. So you said something to me last time we spoke that I thought was really powerful. So I actually wrote this down. So this is what you said. So you said the biggest thing missed in recovery is finding joy and passion on that road or else you won't stay on it. What does that mean to you? Um, what that means to me is I will never go into the store and buy Brussels sprouts <laughs> because I don't like them. <laughs> oh, I, <love laughs> if I don't like something. <laughs> if I don't like something, I don't do it. Mm-hmm. If I don't like recovery, why would I do it? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's the right thing to do? No, nobody's going to do it. Because we have to do it because there's a benefit. And the only way we find benefit in our lives is by finding a connection and joy in what we do. Mm. There's certain music I listen to because I like it. There's foods I eat because I like them. There's people that I hang out with because I like them. I have to have a life that I like or that I find joy in for me to be dedicated to it. And that's a simple, it's a simple matter of being able, again, going in and looking at the truth about who I am and what I really like. Um, I dressed a certain way when I was out there and I listened to certain music and I did all that stuff, but it wasn't what I really liked. Mm. Secretly, while everybody else is listening to Megadeth, I'm singing Barry Manilow in my head. (laughs) I had to get connected with the real me and, uh, and find that path. I think one of the things that's missing a lot in uh, addiction treatment is that search for self. Mm. It's, it can't all be education about disease. It's got to be the search for self because if you don't find a piece of yourself, what are you fighting for? Mm-hmm. Or and why are you going to stay on that road, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm sure you have hobbies that you do because you enjoy them. You don't do hobbies because you don't like them. Mm-hmm. You've got to find some joy. You could find it in music. You know, I, I, I refound music and I, I you know, I kind of went overboard and like, bought 20 different guitars and did all that. But I found music again. I found cooking, how much I love cooking. I found things like, um, like uh, listening to music and doing things with other people and playing, uh, uh, playing Trivial Pursuit with my friends. I mean, I found yeah. all these things that bring me joy that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning and do the right thing mm. so that I could still enjoy those things. Yeah, so it makes you want to stay on that road. That you're exactly. on because you found joy and you found things you you like that you're doing and i like how you said you know the beginning part of that is that's the biggest thing that's missing recovery is a sense of self and that individual person and you know what do they enjoy what do they like what are they excited about to make them want to you know sustain what they what they've been working on right so i mean and that example you gave right there walking into the store you're like you're not going to go into a store and go buy brussels sprouts you don't like brussels sprouts you know it's like that's like if you know you're not you're not going to do something if you don't find joy in that and i like that the fact that you said that you also said a lot of other things that i wrote down too and i'm like all right like <laughs> all right well hit me you know we can talk about anything you want to talk about. i'm just glad you don't like brussels sprouts either <laughs> oh i love them actually i really do i love okay. them yeah <laughs> so <laughs> so we'll have to do a whole different show about how you're that's, wrong about that that's, that's a different that's a different topic we got to get into that at another time but no we'll do the I, first uh, we'll do a cooking show uh state to state cooking show <laughs> yeah you got to teach me how to cook first more for that so oh okay you a little got bit it. better but yeah no i like i like when you said that and the, the fact that you laid it out that way but what i really want to talk about with you is if you could walk me through the story on how did addiction training center start um at one point in my recovery i started working uh in treatment 
and uh, have been doing so for the last uh, 12 or 13 years. Um, you know, prior to that, I had a, I had a good career in, I was in Philadelphia market. I was doing radio and TV and all that stuff, but, um, but working with in recovery was important to me. And, uh, as I spent more time working there, I started seeing holes in how people communicated with people with addiction problems. Mm -hmm. I started to see these breakdowns in communication where, um, you know, and it's, it's almost awful to say, but where certain treatment centers almost took the opinion that, uh, that's just the way they act, mm. you know, and we'll just, we'll punish them and we'll, we'll lock them down until they figure it out and everything. So what happened was I started to observe this concept of people in sobriety or people in recovery business standing on top of a mountain. We'll call that mountain uh, sobriety and looking down at the lowly people down below the active addicts and yelling down with their megaphones, come to me. Mm-hmm. And you've got all these people down at the bottom who have never climbed a mountain and don't know the path and are afraid to go that high by themselves. They're, so they're not going to make that journey. Mm-hmm. And I said, damn it, get down off that mountain. <laughs> Look these people in the eye, take them by the hand and show them the way. Don't just tell them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the, actually the birth of uh, my business partner, Karen and I, who Karen and I have been friends for 40 years. Uh, we're both mm-hmm. in recovery. Um, we got together and said, we got to do something different. And we started looking at different intervention practices and how people approach people with problems. And we kept coming across the same problems that people just don't know how to communicate with them. Um, not to mention the fact that most interventions that are trained are what's called a process intervention. It could take two, three, four, up to six weeks to perform an intervention because mm-hmm. you've got to get family together. You've got to rehearse. You've got to do that. If you know somebody who's using heroin, crack, meth, drinking, whatever it might be, six weeks is six weeks too long. Mm-hmm. People die. People, uh, people end up in jail. People end up killing or hurting other people. It's just six weeks of unnecessary suffering. It's got to happen now. Mm. So taking that, that it's too long of a process, taking the idea that people don't communicate right or well with others, we sat down and we worked something out. We started processing, how can we help other addicts? How can we really do something different? And that's where Addiction Training Center was born and our certified event intervention course. It's not about long drawn out processes. It's about being at the right place at the right time where you come across an addict who is suffering. Mm. Maybe they just got arrested. Maybe they're getting thrown out of their house. Maybe they're just sick and you have a moment of communication with them. How do you communicate? How do you, how do you connect? How do you build rapport when all you've got is maybe a 20 minute window to change somebody's life? Mm. That's what this course is about. It's about real life on the street intervention when somebody needs it. And uh, we've, we've actually, because of COVID, we moved the entire course online. Mm. It's set up so that people can work at their own pace. It's, it's very affordable. Um, it's more important for us to just have enough people out there who understand how to communicate. Now, Paris, when you and I were speaking, um, you know, one of the things I, I gave you an example was, you know, people tend to talk down to other people and don't even realize they're doing it. Mm-hmm. But with our course, we teach what's called mirroring and tone and pace and everything else. It's part of NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. 
and it's like coming home to your favorite dog, your puppy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you come home to a puppy or a dog and you want to connect with that dog, you don't stand above them with a booming voice and say, mm-hmm. hello, dog. <laughs> you get down. You become eye level with them. You change the tone of your voice, your posture, your body language. Your whole being changes so you can make a connection. Mm-hmm. And what you'll see, dogs are wonderful practice tools because they are just all emotion. Mm-hmm. And they connect oh, yeah. so well with people. And, I, and, and one of the things in this course that we point out is that everybody knows how to do that with a dog, but nobody does it with another human being. Mm. When you're with somebody who's suffering, and sometimes I guess we, we bypass that suffering. We say, well, you know, that's, you know they're, they're hurting because their girlfriend left them or because they lost their job or because they ran out of drugs and they're hurting. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, you'll get over it. It'll be fine. At that moment, in that moment of crisis, that is the biggest thing in the world to them. And to discount that is to discount them. Mm. So you have to learn how to connect with them and their pain and what they're going through. And what we found is the people we've trained, we've trained, um, I believe we're about 600 people at this point. Wow. And we travel all over the country. We've got people in Illinois, out in Colorado. Um, We've got people everywhere. We're working with fire departments, bail agencies, uh, rehabs themselves. Uh, what we're finding is that people are starting to find more success with this. If you focus more on making a connection with the person instead of judging or making assumptions about that person, you have a lot better chance at a healthy communication that could get somebody into treatment. And I that's why we you, you gave me an example last time that I thought was really good. You, ta- you told me about uh, training with BHTs, behavioral t- health technicians. Yeah. And I remember you gave me an example of you know, someone who's in a facility who's really struggling with addiction and there's, there's, there's no doctor there. There's no nurse there. There's no person there who you think traditionally, you know, has this sort of training. So then you have someone else who's working and that person, you know, doesn't, has never been trained on that. They don't know how to respond. They don't, don't know what to do. So I love how you, you know, gave me that analogy and said that you guys work with, you know, different groups of people and provide this training. So that way, when there's people who, you know, aren't there who have it, then these other people can step in and have an understanding of how to do that and you know what it's like and you know how to really respond in that moment. Yes, yes. Uh, is my mic okay? Because I think I just cut out for a minute. You good? Yeah. No, it's okay. good. Yeah, you're right, good. Okay. Um, one of the things that we realize is that if you go online and you look up any treatment center, and this is not knocking the treatment centers. There's mm-hmm. a lot of good ones out there. But they're all saying our clinicians, our, our, our clin- uh, clinical staff, which is the therapist and the clinical director, are master's level people. Mm-hmm. In any treatment center, the average time they spend with the client is an hour and a half in a one full week. Mm. And that's a good place. There's some places that don't even do that. So your highest trained people spend less time with them than anyone else in the, in the facility. Wow. Who spends time with them? The, the BHTs, the behavioral health techs or recovery coaches, they might call them in some mm-hmm. places. The, the, uh, the housekeeping staff, the cooks, the drivers who drive them from the airport or to meetings or whatever they're doing. These are the people to spend on average 10 to 12 hours a day with these people. Mm-hmm. And they're not trained to deal with an intervention situation. Intervention being anytime somebody wants to go use their drug of choice or, or wants to leave treatment against medical advice, 
And this is happening at three o'clock in the morning when none of these master's level clinicians mm -hmm. are around. And yeah. all you've got is a tech there who's making minimum wage. And they're standing between your son or your daughter leaving treatment and going out and dying in the street. They're standing between them and the door. If they were trained on how to quickly connect, build rapport, understand, and uh, kind of deflect them into a different direction. If they were trained in that, we'd see a lot less people leaving and relapsing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, 100%. And I love how, you know, you mentioned that you've, you said 600 uh, people you've, you guys have trained so far in the program. Correct. Around, yeah, and you said you, you're all over the place, right? You go different, different places and... Yeah, we're, we're different places. Before, again, before COVID hit, we were traveling out. We were doing um, things in uh, Las Vegas. We were mm -hmm. up in uh, Illinois. We were in New York. We, we were going to different places and doing live seminars. Um, but actually, COVID gave us an opportunity to expand beyond the live, which was really mm -hmm. nice. Uh, so we got the course online. So anybody could take it any time. We're just now starting to... I do a lot of podcasting and different things in our studio here. Yeah, uh, we're just now starting to get the word out to uh, other areas that anybody, anytime can take this course. There's not a prerequisite. Um, it was suggested by some people that we have, you know, they have to be trained or this or have a degree. And I don't see where you can put a degree on saving another person's life. Anybody yeah. who's willing to do it should be able to do it. Mm -hmm. um, we have, uh, we have an NADAC approval, and NADAC is a National Association of Drug and Alcohol Counselors. And through their approval, we're offering six CEUs for the course as well. So if you need continuing education credits, that all comes with the cost of admission. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, so if I, I want to ask you something. So, for, um, so if you could say right now one goal that you are the proudest that you've reached so far since you have started Addiction Training Center, what, what would that be? Um, well, there's been moments where I've, I've been very happy with the results that we've had or different things, but um, every time there's a successful intervention, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. if, and you know what? The truth is, if I spent my whole life doing this and only one person was saved because of what I'm doing, uh, it's worth it. Mm. Uh, because that one person is somebody's mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, son, or daughter. It's somebody important. And uh, we, we, as part of the course, we teach them, you could do a hundred of these interventions. And let's say you only have two successes because mm -hmm. it does happen sometimes. You only have two successes. It was still worth the other 98 that you did to get mm -hmm. to those two so that you could save somebody. Um, I'm proud that people enjoy the course. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that the firefighters are, are um, bringing it into their station houses and they want their, their peer support people trained. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very happy that, uh, that we've made so many friends who are like-minded and just want to do the right thing and help people. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about if one person gets this training and was able to go help one other person, that's all that really matters. Yeah. And I like the fact that you're making it accessible for anyone to, to have access to this, because that's, that's to me is really bridging the gap between the problems that you noticed before you started this, all those things that you were noticing, all these issues that was going on with the communication issues of how, being able to communicate those issues. This is really bridging the gap and allowing people, anybody to do this and learn these, learn these techniques to be able to apply that, you know, whenever they, might need to, you know, maybe if you're not even working in a setting where 
you're dealing with addiction. Cause I know for me personally, you know, um, I, like the connection between mental health and addiction. I remember when I, when I was in the hospital myself, when I was 19, like struggling really bad with bipolar disorder, I met a lot of people in there who I talked to and, and they were struggling with addiction. You know, it was addiction yeah. related. And I was, I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I, I just, I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, how is this treatment that you're, you know, giving to somebody who is dealing with a mental illness, you're giving it to someone with struggling with an addiction. I was when I'm like, how is that going to work for this person? I, I just, I saw like a gap there and I didn't really understand, yeah. you know, why that was, you know, it, it just seems so common to me, you know, and it, and it, and sometimes it is very common that, you know, when you are struggling with an addiction and they, they are comorbid and can be related, but I just felt like it had to be approached differently, you know, cause I felt like, I almost felt like kind of all of the issues were being, you know, here's, here's everything and here's, what we'll do to fix it. And it's, it's being applied to everything. So I like the fact that, you know, you're making addiction training centers, giving people that ability to learn these things and learn how to do that. Because, you know, that example you gave with the dog is so true. You know, people know how to respond, you know, with an animal and get down on your knees and pet the dog and all that stuff. But then when it's, you know, you have someone in front of you who's, you know, an alcoholic or, you know, on cocaine or meth or whatever, whatever's going on, you don't, you don't have that same, uh, same connection that you do with an animal. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I think. And it, and it works, you know, this, the, the cool thing is because it's so communication based and it's focused on communication, the, um, the idea that it's an addict or an alcoholic is secondary to that communication, mm -hmm. which means if you have somebody who has a mental health issue or has uh, any other kind of uh, addiction or uh, compulsive disorder, and some mental health is compulsive disorder, uh, if you could communicate at this level, if you could learn how to do this, uh, you can help a lot of people in a lot of other areas. Mm -hmm. I'll even tell you, if you can learn some of these skills, you'll never fail at a job interview. You know how to communicate with people. Mm -hmm. You know how to do things. Um, communication has been lost. You know, uh, everything is cell phones and texting and, and uh, haves and have nots. And, you know, we're going through election time now. And, you know, the big argument about, you know, whose lives matter and this. And I mean, mm -hmm. we just forgot how to talk to each other and how yeah. to communicate. And we're trying to bring that back to a very core level of someone is struggling. They just need one person to talk to them. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I'll challenge anybody who's listening um, to think back. And there's always been a, maybe one point in your life where somebody said something that made a difference in your life that you carry with you today. That's how change actually happens. Change doesn't happen in long processes and change doesn't happen uh, with uh, somebody spending hour after hour, it's usually one sentence or one moment where somebody looks at you, talks to you, or says something to you that impacts you. Mm -hmm. We're looking for that moment with these people who are struggling and just looking for that, that one little, that one breath of hope mm -hmm. that there's something for me. And if we can give them that hope through simple, basic kindness and communication, we could change lives. Yeah. And I know, I know another thing you brought up related to that, you know, there's, so we, we talked last time about this. You said, you know, it can be, it can, it can sometimes be seen as a weakness to talk about struggles with addiction. So if you had somebody, I want to see like what, what advice 
do you have for someone afraid to talk about struggles they may be facing with addiction? Yeah, I think times are different now. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, back when I first started my, my uh, recovery journey, which was like 38, 39 years ago when I first came in the first time, it was different. You didn't talk about being an addict or being an alcoholic out in public. You didn't do that. Times are different now. I mean, go to Hollywood. You can't get a starring role unless you've been to at least three rehabs. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, we look at things differently now. Um, the truth is, is if we're afraid to talk about that, it's, it's our own view. Um, I, I'm not concerned about other people seeing me as weak because other people saw me throwing up in the streets and walking yeah. around with piss stains in my pants. And I wasn't concerned about what they thought about me. I was concerned about what I thought about me. And I saw um, admitting I had a problem as a weakness in myself. And I know a lot of other people do. And what I want to tell them and what I want them to know is standing up to any fear that you have is the greatest show of strength you can ever have. Even if that fear is a fear of appearing weak, if you can stand up to that, you are strong. Uh, strength is in, is in looking inward. Strength isn't in looking other people. Strength is looking inward. Courage is looking inward. Do it. Um, that's all I could say. Uh, if you were drowning and you could yell for help, we would scream to beat the band. Mm -hmm. But you're sitting with a pill bottle in one hand and a, and a bottle of beer in the other, and you can't even murmur one word help. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, you're drowning. Yell, scream from the rooftops. Yeah. From the rooftops. Because if it was somebody you cared about, you would beg them, just accept help, just ask for help. Mm -hmm. When it's us, we look at it differently. Have the yeah. courage to look inside, have the courage to scream out loud. I promise anybody who screams loud enough, you will get help. Mm. Yeah, no, you, yeah. And I, I'm just, I just want to say thank you to you, you know, for doing this and coming on and sharing all this information and sharing your advice and your tips, because you, you lived through this, you know, you lived through this addiction and then you turned around and you and Karen created addiction training center to be able to provide people with these, this information techniques and skills on how to help people in these situations. So, I mean, just, I really want to thank you for coming on and, you know, having this conversation with me and it's, it's always a pleasure. I mean, even though I've spoken to you twice, it's always a pleasure, you know, getting to connect with you and talk with you and hear your stories. So Scott, you know what, just thank you. Paris, keep doing what you're doing too. Um, I, I, I love the fact that you kind of like erase that gap between mental health and addiction because at the end of the day, it's really, it's all connected. It really, really is. Um, and all we need is enough people like you out there who are willing to speak up about their own experiences uh, so that the person who is afraid uh, to say something might hear you gain the courage so that they can speak up. So mm -hmm. uh, again, my heart's with you. Uh, I think oh. you're doing a great job. Thank you. Yeah, that's why, you know, that's why I'm here doing this and love doing these interviews, love having these conversations because, you know, I, I always take something away from each and every one and, you know, just being able to, to have this little platform and do this for people and hear your story and put my story out there and, you know, maybe someone's listening and they connect, they, they make a connection to that and they feel like, you know what, you know, if she can talk about it, he can talk about it, then maybe, then, then I can too. So, yeah. It's, there we go. Yeah. There we go. Well, and I hope you'll join me on one of my shows sometime. Of course. Of course. Excellent. 
Yes, I'm very excited to put this one out there. And I want to say to everyone listening, I hope that you guys have a good day, a good night, whatever time it is when you're listening to this. And all right, everybody. All right, Scott. Bye. All right, guys, that is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed creating it. As always, if you guys would like to get in touch with me to talk about becoming a guest or to share your thoughts on this episode with me, you can do that in a number of ways. You can shoot me an email to crookedillness at gmail.com. You can send me a DM on Instagram at crookedillness, or you can message me on my Facebook page at crookedillness as well. I hope you guys have a beautiful rest of your day and thank you so much for listening to Crooked Illness.